Uh, yeah, Father, bless this time. Uh, we love you. We need your spirit. We need you to open our eyes, tear down our strongholds, build truth. Give us the mind of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm uh, doing a new, yeah, new season of seminars. We have a two-year program. This church is an intensive discipleship ministry. It's not a church. We just happen to meet on Sunday. If you can't do the discipleship ministry, the stuff, and you like the church, just come. We don't, we're not like going to kick you out. Whatever you can get from this church, if you like the prayer meeting, even if uh, someone from another church wants to benefit from something we do, we don't care. But the, the heart of this, we do care. We love you. But I mean, as far as what you want to participate in, it doesn't matter to us at what level you want to get involved. But the heart of this is really the Saturday seminars the discipleship houses. That's where this started. And this place is for Christians who want to grow and learn and uh, really be pushed. So uh, this semester, and we try to go along with a college semester. It works out really nice, nicely. This started out as a college ministry. And then everybody aged out, got, mar got married, had kids, and COVID hit. And then we realized we got to push back into the college. So we're doing that right now. But new semester, new courses. One of them is um, the Bible Trek, which is going through the Old Testament narrative. So you know every single major person and event in the Old Testament. And it's fun. And uh, you'll probably take notes, but technically you don't have to because we learn the entire Old Testament narrative with 50 hand signs. We have some additional ones, Bible two parts. Those ones don't really count. Um, and so the ones that count are actually starting this week. So if you haven't signed up for that, go online, et cetera, et cetera. But the homework for this week was listening to Genesis two times through or reading it in different translations. So NIV, NISB, King James, New King James, New Living. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the the translations are not saying anything different. You have a, a room full of really smart guys. They're using the exact same Hebrew. Uh, I'm not going to tell you the fancy German name for it. Um, uh, Hebrew text or and the exact exact same Greek text, which is kind of fun. It's Nestle, I like Nestle chocolate, Nestle Elan. But they're always making new editions of this by finding new evidence. So the different translations are just a bunch of smart guys in a room saying, how do we take this Greek and put it into English? That's the only difference in the good translations. They're trying to figure out how to take the, the Greek and Hebrew evidence that virtually everyone agrees on and put it into English. So the idea that it's the telephone game and we've lost what's been said and all that, that just comes from people that haven't studied much. Um, but so we want you to read it and listen to how this smart group of people put the Hebrew and how this smart group of people put the Hebrew. Anyway, that's why we want you to do it in different versions, because you can get little different nuances. And wow, that's kind of a different way of interpreting that. But anybody that has worked with languages know there's 15 different ways to translate a sentence. If you go from Spanish to English, maybe not 15, but three or four at least, um, or Russian or back, you know, back and forth between one language to another. You can do it a bunch of different ways. All that to say, I uh, was doing my homework, even though I, I'm the first instructor. I used to do all the teaching, but I'm just doing the first two classes. And then I'm letting some of the um, teachers who God's raising up in this church take different sections of the walkthrough. And I listened to it and I was like, wow, I haven't listened to this in a while. I haven't listened just through the narrative of Genesis in a while. Um, it's not that I haven't been studying the Bible. I've been obsessing over the Psalms for the last five years. Uh, it's not that I haven't read anywhere else, but I've really, really been trying to get the Psalms under control. And that's 150 chapters. So that was quite a project. So I kind of didn't do as much swimming around in other sections. So I listened to it and I was like, wow, this is a lot of confusing stuff for a new Christian. You need to know the narrative. But then you're like, what? Why'd they do that? And what? Why'd they do that? And why'd God let them do that? And 
that looks like God commanded them to do something crazy. And so when you're studying through the Old Testament, I thought it would be really helpful maybe to uh, talk about how to feed from the Old Testament narrative. And I said, separating the wheat from the chaff, not that all scripture is inspired by God, all of it's inspired by God, but when it records the devil telling a lie, that's inspired. God had him record that, but it's still a lie, right? And so it's not, there's some that feeds your soul, and then there's some things you can get confused on, and you need to learn to separate out um, what is supposed to feed me from this passage, from what is something that is irrelevant to my present, you know, spiritual expectations, you know, that God has on me. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, Let's see here. I thought I'd start with, if you want to grow as Christians, you have to, have to, have to, have to, have to, have to, have to know that book. If you don't know that book, you cannot mature. Right now, it's very popular to think we're all hyper-spiritual, we're super-spiritual. All I need is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, and He'll appear in my oatmeal and He'll give me dreams, and He'll write in the sky, and I'll get impressions to move this way and that way. No, you just end up being spiritually crazy and hurting yourself and others. I've just seen this again and again and again. The way you become mature is you get rooted and grounded deeply in God's word. That's how you get mature. God can, I wouldn't say show up in your oatmeal, but he could, but I've never heard of that happening. But he can speak to you in more mystical, spiritual ways. But the parameters for what he will say are the scriptures. So that's how you know if it's the devil throwing you a curveball or whether you check it. So when God does speak to you, um, maybe tells you to do something, hey, empty out your bank account, give it to this ministry or whatever. He, he can tell you to do crazy stuff. Go go on a missions trip to, you know, a new brother here from Ecuador. Go on a missions trip to Ecuador, whatever. Um, uh, was that the Lord? Or go up and tell brother so-and-so this or that, or sister so-and-so this or that. Um, was that the Lord? If you don't know the word, you're pretty helpless. And the devil can nudge you just as well as the Holy Spirit can nudge you. And you are very, very vulnerable. The Bible says tossed here and there by waves, et cetera. So we need to know this book because it will create the parameters, you know, with which God, you know, between which he will speak to us. But man, it's, it's pretty crazy when you look through Genesis. Wild stuff going on. Oh, so God wants us to be polygamists? Oh, so I'm supposed to give my handmaid to my husband if I can't conceive a child so he can have a child? Is that the way it works? Oh, you know, it's just, it, it just, I'm supposed to have slaves. It's, no, we got to learn to separate all this stuff out. So here's a verse from Romans 15. Romans 15 doctrinally is the most important book in the Bible for you to get nailed down. It doesn't have narrative, it doesn't have stories. It's not, you know, once upon a time in the land of so-and-so, there lived a guy named so-and-so. That's a lot of what's going on in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's just straight teaching. But this Romans is the most important doctrinal book. So we have a seminar in Romans. You need to know the content of Romans if you're a mature believer. But at the end of Romans, near the end, it says, whatever was written in earlier times, as in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. The old, they didn't have the New Testament gathered together in the early church. All they had were the Old Testament books. They relied mostly uh, heavily on the book of Psalms, um, the, uh, the prophetic book of Isaiah, but also the narrative. They'd use that a lot in their teachings. So we're supposed to use the Old Testament somehow to feed our souls as new covenant believers. But how do we sort out the wheat from the chaff? What is supposed to feed us versus what do we set off to the side and say, that's not a principle that I'm supposed to be following today. So I wanted to look at a little bit of Genesis. I know some of you guys are reading through it um, and give you a few. It's not it's not comprehensive by any stretch of the imagination but a few tools to take into Genesis with you so that uh, hopefully you'll be able to get more out of it and you won't stumble over some stuff that people stumble over a lot. One thing I didn't put on the list was if you want to hear from God, Psalm 95 says, today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your heart. There are some spiritual requirements. If you're not born again, 
If you don't even know what that means, come talk to me afterwards because you need the Holy Spirit in you. Sounds very mystical. It is very mystical. You need the Holy Spirit in you for that book to come to life. Um, yeah, the scripture says, eyes not seen, ears not heard. It's not entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. But to us, he's revealed them through the spirit. He's talking to born again people. Kind of prerequisite. Are you born again? If not, someone said the Bible's a love letter written to his born again children. If you're trying to read it as an outsider, you're reading someone else's mail. It's not going to make a whole lot of sense to you. So you need the Holy Spirit, but you also have to be walking in obedience. You have to be walking in obedience because God wants to instruct you through his word. And so if you have a known sin in your life, don't crack your Bible open in your devotion time saying, oh God, just blow my mind with new spiritual revelation. God's going to say, not happening. Call your roommate and say you're sorry. Forgive your mom for what she did when you were a kid, right? Start being faithful with your finances. If you're like, no, I just want this amazing revelation. God's going to keep saying no to move forward you need to say yes for what you know to what he has shown you anyway these are kind of the spiritual prerequisites but i'm going to assume that virtually well the vast majority of you guys understand that this is not an academic book if you approach it as just an academic book you're you're going to blow up you need the spirit you need humility you need obedience you need to want to hear new things from god so he's, he's going to challenge you. He's going to change you through his word. Like James says, with humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. So God's going to challenge you, change you through the reading of his word. Now let's move on to some of the more practical brass tacks kind of stuff that you should think about when you're approaching Genesis and all the biblical narrative. Let's see. You're sorting things out. Um, let's see. In the first place, there is a concept called divine accommodation, which means God has to stoop down to us on a lot of different levels to communicate with us at all. Um, when I was in seminary, some of you, maybe someone's listening who's in seminary, I was taught divine accommodation simply means the Bible uses figurative language to talk about God. I was taught that that was kind of it. Then I actually was, I was doing my PhD work on divine accommodation. This thing is such a wild multifaceted subject. I'm just going to talk to you about a few types of divine accommodation here that you need to be thinking about as you're reading the Bible. So you don't mess up. The first one is, as you're reading through Genesis, God is always showing up in a human form. I grew up in the church. I didn't think about this till I had a couple theological degrees. He's always showing up head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes, right? And a beard. Always. Always. Um, there's an interesting figure in the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord. Virtually all the church fathers and the reformers and everybody said this is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's not some angel. It's actually God, because if you think about who is God, God is infinite. He's outside of creation, which means he doesn't have a form. And if he doesn't have a form, that means he's not bound to time, which now theologians think they have this all charted out and mapped out. So if you go get a degree in systematic theology, it's not going to get you a whole lot further down the road in your relationship with God. I hate to tell you that, but I've studied this to ad nauseum. Um, God comes in a simple way that a child can understand always. So he's always showing up in the book of Genesis is as like, like a person. A lot of times he's con people are confusing him as a person. And uh, this is in the book. Now the whole book isn't online yet. I'm dropping it chapter by chapter and I'm asking you guys to help me correct it so we can get it all ironed out and then we'll get it printed. But I have five chapters up. The second chapter talks about this. We can't see God in his infinite form, and we can't understand God in his infinite form, and we can't deal with him in his infinite form. So accommodation means he stoops down to us, and it's like he puts on a human suit. And he lets us deal with him aggressively in that way. He lets us appeal to his emotions. Yeah, but does infinite God have emotions? Does he have human-like compassions? How can he have human-like compassions if he knows all things and blah, blah, blah? 
Nobody in the Bible ever asked those questions. If he's sovereign and he's in control of all things, then is, do our choices really matter? Those are theological questions you never come across in the Bible. You have people dealing with God as he's coming to them in a very human-like form. And through the Old Testament, it's a lot of times it's this angel of the Lord in the book of Joshua. It's this figure called the captain of the Lord's hosts. But if you get rid of the chapter breaks, the captain of the Lord's host starts speaking in first person as Yahweh. So anyway, that's one, that's one kind of, it's going to help you to understand what's going on and how God wants us to interact with him. And then the Bible says, like, Moses changed his mind. And you'll have all these sermons by pastors, like, oh, God doesn't really change his mind because he knows all things and he's ordained all things and blah, 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 blah. I, I think if Moses were talking to these guys, what are you talking about? What are you doing? There's nothing in the Bible that talks about this kind of stuff. It may be true, but the psalmist says, such things are too wonderful for me, too awesome for me. They're too high. I cannot comprehend them. I can't deal with them. What can I deal with God as he comes to me in human form? So this is really important for understanding how the Bible works, how our relationship with God works. And then ultimately, God comes in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, I am the definitive revelation of God. Oh my goodness, is that all there is to God? Just six foot tall and olive colored skin and, and a beard? No, that's what he gives you to deal with. We know that there's more, but he lets you get to know this very specific person that you can understand, that a small child can understand. So dude, that's one kind of accommodation you need to be aware of. Now here's, here's some other weird kinds of accommodation. Well, that one's pretty strange too. Most people have never thought about that. Very liberating for me once I realized that this is, in the Bible, it always says, it says again and again, and he can't be seen, right? No one can see me and live. Uh, and then, you know, 1,500 years later, Paul says, uh, God dwells in unapproachable light. No one can see and no one has ever seen him. And then Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And then Abraham said, God, the, the Lord stopped by for a barbecue, you know? And, um, and then Jacob says, uh, I wrestled with the Lord. Um, how? No, you didn't see God in his infinite form. You saw God in the form that he comes to us. It's not a ruse or a joke or anything because ultimately Jesus fuses himself to this form called the hypostatic union. It's a mystery. We deal with God in the way that he comes to us. And by doing that, somehow we're engaging this God that would fry our circuitry if we even tried to make sense of him. So now here's another kind. Once we get past that and we realize God's a very specific person that he wants us to know, he wants Abraham to know and Moses to know. And throughout scripture, he progressively reveals who this person is. Ultimately, Jesus says, this is the final revelation. This is who you're dealing with. Paul says, the fullness of God, the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form. Me, Jesus, not me, but Jesus, right? So here's another kind of accommodation. God lets people be culturally stupid. That's where a lot of your problems come up. Does God allow slavery? Does God want us to be polygamists? No, God allow this is called divine accommodation. We are swimming. We right now are swimming in cultural stupidity. <laughs> God puts up with this to quite a high degree. Because if he required perfection to talk with us, to work with us, that he'd never get anything done with us. So he puts up with a degree of cultural stupidity, even in his A-team players. Uh, otherwise, he could never get anything done. And he's putting up with stupidity, cultural stupidity in you and me right now. What are we talking about? This answers a lot of the weird questions. It doesn't make sense to us because this is not our culture. Like polygamy. This is just what was going on. Uh, or slavery. Or this handmaiden surrogacy thing that Abraham does with his handmaid, Hagar. And God does not, if God broke in every nanosecond to make sure you are walking perfectly, uh, he couldn't teach us anything. It's kind of like me you know, trying to teach my kid to do the dishes. Good enough. Good enough. But if I, no, just give it to me. No, no, scrub. No, you got to do it this way. No, you got to do it that way. Like hovering, hovering, hovering. And you couldn't get anything done. You had so so he puts up with this, and this is just uh, 
a lot of the things we have trouble with. So if you're in a culture, say, that's swimming in slavery, you have a mass of individuals that don't know even how to survive outside of slavery. <laughs> God's going to tell you, be really good to your slaves. Treat them with honor. Um, he'll say, yeah, it, you know, just like in the New Testament, it'd be better if these people were free, but this is too complex. Let's end slavery today, run them out of your house, uh, and then they'll all starve to death because they don't have any skills. And they don't know how to handle it. Right? So, so he puts up with this kind of a thing. The same with polygamy. There's even places on earth now that, that have polygamy. I go to Africa quite a bit. Um, there's a lot of polygamy going on in Africa. When a polygamist comes to Christ, what do you do? Do you throw all the other wives out with all their kids? They will die. The, the culture is not... So sometimes accommodation is there's no good option here. There's only bad and worse. So Jesus, Jesus uh, addresses this in Matthew 19. Why did God say... Uh, if you want a divorce, write up a certificate of divorce. Jesus said from the beginning, it wasn't supposed to be that way, but because of your hardened hearts, and I want to say hardened heads, but he didn't say that. God allowed this, but it's not supposed to be this way. This is not how he set it up originally. So he puts up with cultural stupidity. So a lot of things you struggle with. God's not saying, yay, polygamy, yay, slavery. Um, he's saying, no, we're going to deal with these people where they're at. And over time, we'll sort out these issues, but they're so entrenched. Anyway, this is another kind of accommodation. Uh, God even overlooks a level of moral dullness. You'll read something, and you're like, that's a sin, and God didn't zap them. Well, there's a psalm, Psalm 130 said, if you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, who could stand? If God wanted to be a strict legalist and deal with even us, according to our performance, our moral performance, this would just this room would be a smoking crater. You're doing things right now. You may be living a holier life than you ever have in your entire life. God's going to show you something next week or next month, and you're going to go, what? That's a sin. I had no idea. So you'll even find God putting up with sins that, like Abraham, what is this deal where he's always telling people that his wife is his sister? What a knucklehead. And then you think about poor Sarah. You know, you, some of you guys think you have a rough marriage. Try giving your wife away to a Pharaoh and see how your wife and you get along. You know, I just don't want to talk right now. What is it, honey? It's that whole feral thing, you know, it's seriously, but then he does it a second time. And then his son does it. This is like a, this is now some of our families have entrenched nonsense. Some of you guys, are, some of you guys in this room have this. Let's just tell a lie to the kids because it will be better for them. Yeah. That's cultural familial idiocy because then when the little kid finds out that's not really my dad i was adopted what the heck right it, it never quite works out and abraham and god lets us kind of work those things out but a lot of times he'll put up with some low functioning moral behavior and he doesn't just send lightning bolts or um so in this story you'll see lying You'll see stupid family habits uh, or helping God out. That always works really well. Um, so anyway, these are just, so we separating the wheat from the chaff. These aren't things to imitate or emulate or preach. Like, you know, the Mormons, oh, we should all be polygamous. No, you know, when um, we should all give our handmaidens. If we can't have a baby, go get a handmaiden and give that one to your, no, it didn't turn out well. Just look at the fruits of it. It turned into a nightmare. God was putting up with it. That's called divine accommodation. So I just have three kinds here. There's about 15 different categories of divine accommodation, but these are some really helpful ones. God's always going to be dealing with people 
in a very human-like way. And you don't have to be afraid or ashamed to deal with God in that way. From your perspective, the future is perfectly open. Every decision you make matters. Was that how it is in the infinite realm? My answer, after 30 years of doing this, don't know, don't care. I'm too stupid. I can, I'm not, I, God doesn't invite me to the council of the Trinity. I don't know how an infinite mind works. I don't know how his will works. I don't know how he wins at all. I just know that he does. I don't know how his perfect foreknowledge works with my prayers. I just know that if I don't pray, things don't happen. If I do bad things, bad things happen. If I do good things, good things happen. They're just some rules he wants me to play by. And he lets me get to know him in very much the same way I get to know you guys as people. He has things he likes, things he doesn't like. It's very simple. And a lot of times we just get super complicated. So uh, this is something we see in scripture from the very beginning. He's walking with Adam and then cool the day. He's wrestling with the patriarchs. Even when they pray, they're arguing with him. They're trying to change his mind. Um, Divine accommodation two. a lot of the stuff that troubles you, slavery, polygamy, all this sexual chaos. Um, it's them being culturally stupid. And God just, you know, I can't fix everything right immediately. Um, just like he doesn't do in your life. He progressively sanctifies you and illumines your understanding. And then the third one is he even lets people get away with moral nonsense. Um, I guess I'll share this. I don't want to take too much time. I got to get to the text here. But um, a few years ago, some of you have heard this. I didn't think I was bitter at anyone because I didn't actively think about harm coming to people or anything like that. And God says, you're bitter against a whole lot of people. And uh, he said, what you've done is you've just relegated them to hyperspace. You've just pushed them out of your world. You don't, you don't curse them, but you don't bless them. They don't even exist anymore. Churches, institutions, former pastors, friends, people that have irritated you. And God says, that is a form of bitterness. And I was like, oh. And as soon as he identified it, he was just putting up with it, though. I was being, I was bearing good fruit, leading people to Christ, discipling people. God's going to be doing that for the rest of your life. So you see him putting up with even moral foolishness. A couple more things here. In the scripture, everything is moves forward on the basis of covenants. Covenants are agreements between two parties. Uh, sometimes the covenants are... If you do this, I'll do this. Or if if both parties agree to do something, then they'll stay bound together. Um, and then some covenants that they're, they're God-sided covenants are, I'm going to do everything. All you have to do is trust me. But the whole story moves forward on covenants. This is something else to be aware of. Always pay attention to names. Names are massive. I don't have time to go into it, but even God, God's not God's name. That's like me calling you person. Hey, person. How you doing, person? God is what he is. And his name is Yahweh. That's used thousands of times in the Old Testament. Yahweh means he is. And then as you walk through scripture and you study the narrative, he reveals more and more and more who he is. But even with people, when people go through a radical life change, God will give them a new name. So names are very important. And uh, let's see what else here. Oh, what you're looking for in the midst of all the chaos are spiritual principles that we can apply once we remove all the chaff still today. And usually those things will just be stated plainly in the New Testament. So I thought I'd jump in real quick and look at some of Genesis, a little bit of Genesis here. Walk through the Bible, we have creation, then we have fall, then we have flood, then we have confusion. Okay, these are the macro, cosmic, big events. And then, uh, yeah, man's in big trouble, but God comes up with a plan of redemption. So the creation, fall, flood, nation, we get up to chapter 11, and we're like 30,000 feet. And then we zoom in on this plan of redemption with a man by the name of Abraham, and God makes a covenant with him. And so this is Genesis 12. God tells Abram, Later, Abraham. What did I say about names? Very, very important. So um, he says, go forth from your country, your relatives, your father's house to the land, which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I'll curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is making a covenant with Abraham. I'm going to redeem humanity through you. So we've, after creation, we fell into sin, God destroyed the world. Uh, we, we then got back together and rebelled. And so God scattered us all over the planet. And God says, I'm going to come up with a plan of redemption. I'm going to start with Abraham. A uh, couple important things as you read through this kind of goes through stages of development in Genesis 15. Something very important happens that's quoted in the New Testament several times. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, which means God said, I'm going to enter in this covenant with you and I'm going to do all these things for you. What I need you to do is believe me. I'm going to do all the heavy lifting, but I need you to believe me. That's that's your side of the deal. Believe me. And he did. And that's why he got all the benefits and blessings of the whole thing. And this is a principle that in the New Testament, this is this is one of those principles that in the midst of all the chaff, we can pull out of the Old Testament and say, oh, that's what God needs me to do. He's offered me a covenant where he said he's going to do all the heavy lifting. And like Abraham, he wants me to believe. It's not, you know, if you don't smoke cigarettes and, you know, if you're not mean to people and, you know, whatever, um, then I'll save you. It's like, no, I'm going to save you and I need you to believe in that. I've done all the heavy lifting. It's not based on your performance. Um, So anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. And then God shows Abraham that uh, this covenant is all on his shoulders by doing something very strange. In the, Old, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to make a covenant with someone, a lot of times you would cut animals in half, and then you'd walk through them. It's called cutting a covenant. Um, so Abraham cut animals in half, and then a deep sleep came on him, and then God himself manifested in a very strange way. It came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. But this is God manifesting himself saying, I'm not asking you to walk through. Why why the animals? Because basically you're saying, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, what you're saying. And so God is saying, I'm going to keep this covenant. I'm the only one responsible for upholding it. I'm going through this one all by myself. It's pretty neat, pretty neat moment in scripture. But you see all kinds of covenants. Sometimes they're conditional. They're, sometimes they're based on the two people's performance. But this covenant with Abraham is God saying, I'm carrying all the weight. And then the covenant that he offers us in the New Testament, that we, when we do the Lord's table, this is the new covenant in my blood. You know, drink this. And, you know, do, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And we eat the bread and drink the cup. That's us thinking about the covenant we're in, which is, again, a covenant that he's fully responsible for. And then all we're required to do is believe to receive the benefits and blessings. And another interesting thing about Abraham is, uh, so once he entered into the covenant, he and Sarah then were perfect and they never made any mistakes. And that's why God blessed them. No, no. Some of you guys are ahead of me. You've done your homework. You're like, what? And what a moron. What is he doing? Why, why did he do that? So I just want to look at one of these crazy events. And this, this, this uh, for some reason, I got hung up on Sarah. I just couldn't get her out of my mind. So back to this God showing up as a man thing. Abraham's sitting in his tent in the heat of the day. Three dudes walk up. It says the Lord appeared to Abraham. Three dudes walk up. So if you study it out, it seems to be the Lord manifesting in a human form and two angels. Because later he sends those angels down to Sodom and Gomorrah. But one of these angels speaks in first person for the Lord. And it says the Lord has shown up. Eventually in this conversation, he says, hey, Sarah, you know, go make a killer meal. And, you know, you know that uh, Casey barbecue thing you do with the fatted calf? Do that. Make some bread. Seriously, we, we, we spiritualize this stuff. God is literally like, ah, this is good stuff. Can I get seconds? You know, he's literally like a person eating the food, engaging them. If you find this offensive, read your Bible. He's, he has a, he's, 
eating at a barbecue at Abraham's house. So he doesn't want us to always be thinking of him with 25 cent words. Anyway, in this discussion, he says to Sarah, or he says to Abraham, where's Sarah, your wife? He said, there in the tent. And he said, I'll return to you this time next year. And Sarah, your wife will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being also old? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I'm old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? He's, he's the Lord. At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I didn't laugh. She was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. So uh, the Bible's so real. All right, who's, who's done that in here? Who, who You've been afraid, so you told a lie. Now, who's afraid to raise their hand, so they're telling a lie right now? Yeah. This is just very, very human. It's very human response. Um, and I thought there's a sermon right there, but I have to leave it alone. Um, yeah, just move along, Tad. So God says this is going to happen. There's a lot more background here. This is part of God fulfilling his word to Abraham. They tried to help God along. Sarah had a, a they went to Egypt. Sarah picked up a slave. Abraham pulled the stupid, she's my sister thing. I guess she was a, sorry, I don't mean to be too crass, a really hot 80-something-year-old lady. Because everybody was bonkers for Sarah. So the Pharaoh's like, get that woman and bring her into my harem. Um, and then, yeah, he, he, God comes against Pharaoh. He's got to get it all straightened out. But one of the things Pharaoh does is he gives Abraham a bunch of gifts. And uh, if you put the pieces together, one of those gifts was this slave girl, Hagar. So when, when uh, Sarah, they didn't have fertility clinics, so they had their own culturally stupid way of having children, which was give your slave to your husband and uh, you can have a child through the slave. And she shouldn't have done it. And it just ended up causing problems. And then the slave girl ends up despising Sarah because, I mean, having a kid was a big deal. It was kind of the deal when you're a woman back in biblical times. And so seriously, it's kind of like, mm, you know, I'm fertile, woman. You ain't fertile. You're just an old thing. You're not, you ain't nothing. And so she starts giving her a hard time. I'm serious. It says she's giving her a hard time because she has a kid and then Sarah starts to hate her. And, and then when Sarah does finally have a kid and her kid's picking on Sarah's kid, it's like a soap opera. It's like days of our lives sometimes. A lot of stupidity going on. Anyway, but God says, no, no, no. You tried to help me out. I don't need your help. This is your covenant partner. You're going to have a kid through Sarah. So if we jump ahead a few chapters. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken. I'm not going to read all this because I need to make tracks. And, uh, but I jumped, I jumped chapters. I mean, what's going on in between there? We got 18, then we got 21. What happens in 19? Oh, that's Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> And then uh, what happens in 20, which, yeah, I don't even have time to go into that. There's a lot that happens in between the promise and the fulfillment. For those of you who are just listening, it was a picture of an atomic bomb. And so Sodom and Gomorrah is chapter 19 when God wipes out Sodom and Gomorrah because they're grossly immoral. And now God, he will accommodate us in our moral, you know, up dirty to a level, but there's just outright immorality that destroys a culture and destroys people. And, and at that point, God will send prophetic voices. And if a culture won't respond, he's got to destroy it. There's a level that won't utterly destroy. And so that's what he'll put up with. But Sodom and Gomorrah was totally out of control. So he had to wipe it out. 
So um, now listen, this is in between the promise and the fulfillment. Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, settled in uh, Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed to Gerar. Abraham said to his wife, uh, said of his wife, she's my sister. So Abimelech, King of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Dude, come on. Um, God came to Abimelech in a dream in the night and said, behold, you're a dead man. Because of the woman you've taken, she's married. Abimelech had not come near to her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Um, did he not say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Which is funny. You talk about divine accommodation. This guy can say I'm innocent, which means I see a beautiful girl on the street and I'm like, you're in my harem. So somehow he thinks... He's a good guy and he can get away with that kind of nonsense. So again, the cultural stupidity that God puts up with, but God's like, yeah, you're right. From your twisted, crazy moral, you know, compass, you didn't do anything wrong. But this is between the promise and the fulfillment. And we're not even talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Sarah again gets taken prisoner. So God said, I'm going to do this in your life. And now she's living with some pagan king. And then the next chapter, he fulfills the promise. So uh, what we're looking for, again, because I got to make tracks, are in all of this cultural stupidity and divine accommodation and all this kind of stuff, what are principles that we can feed on from these stories? Let's see here. Principles to glean. Lots of crazy things can happen between promise and fulfillment. So uh, some of you guys, God maybe said something to you about what God was going to do through your life. And something so outrageous might happen to you that you think it, it could never possibly happen. I don't know, this is coming to me strong. I don't know if it's my own brain or it's the Lord. But uh, like, I don't think she'd mind. She's a really super humble, humble person. But like Michaela, she thought she's supposed to be a, a missionary. She did some foolish things her first time out. She thought she was done. Right? There may be some crazy, outrageous things and some things even because of your own foolishness and stupidity that seemed to make what God said an absolute impossibility. I guess that was the thing that really nailed me. So I know somebody here needs to hear that. God is going to fulfill his word to you. You need to believe it. No matter where you, if you're not dead, so everybody check your pulse. If you're not dead, if God has spoken to you, um, he's going to fulfill his word. Okay. That's one thing we can glean. God's major covenants are one-sided. A lot of people are living their Christian life thinking that uh, they lost their salvation because they smoked weed this weekend or they had a moral collapse or whatever. Um, <laughs> God did all the heavy lifting. I'm not saying go out and sin. It's a baby who thinks, oh, I got a free pass now because I have Jesus in my heart. I can go sin. Paul's like, what are you, stupid? <laughs> Literally, he says, are you ignorant? Do you have no knowledge? And at other places, he's like, those things lead to death. Why would you want to do those things? It's like a, you know, a drug addict, a meth addict, a crack addict. You get a little buzz but or an alcoholic. What, what's the end result? It's always bad. So you may get a little buzz, uh, but... Um, God says, I just need you to keep believing in what I've done for you. That the cross was big enough. And again, I tell, I've said this before, if you're not dead, you got nothing but hope. The devil wants to tell you you're done. Nope, if you're done, you'd be dead. God wants you to know that there's still grace. The cross, God, you didn't surprise God. He saw it coming. He knew the kind of nonsense we we're going to get involved in. So I, I talked about Michaela. She's in the, oh, she's in the, which chapter? Slow to anger chapter, which is chapter four in the book. She thought she was done. No, God said, no, you just need to learn a little more about me. 
and your fall is going to help you to see my grace is bigger than you thought it was. Well, where is she right now? She's out tearing it up on the mission field, right? So God's covenants are, big covenants are one-sided. We can make covenants with one another, kind of like a contract. If you don't keep your side of the contract, we're done. I'm going to get a repo guy, you know, with dog the bounty hunter. He's going to come and take the truck back because we had a two-sided covenant. But um, I don't know, is he still a guy? Is he still a thing? Anyway, but God's covenants, he said, I did it all. I just need you to believe. I've taken care of everything. Um, sin lets some things loose, like Abimelech. Repentance and intercession changes outcomes. So God cursed the house of Abimelech, the king that took Sarah into his house, and none of the women could bear children. And I don't think God shoots lightnings out of his fingernails. I think our sin uh, opens us up to demonic influence. That's oftentimes the judgment of God is God's removing his grace, his protection, and Satan's rushing in. So something happened in the house of Abimelech. So Abimelech, none of his women could bear children because of the sin he had committed. God said to Abimelech, have Abraham pray for you because he's a prophet. So there's things that it, it also teaches us about intercession. There are things that have been let loose in our lives and our families' lives. This is why we pray on Tuesday nights. We can reverse natural outcomes and even spiritual laws can be, uh, God's given us kind of a trump card for even spiritual outcomes. This person deserves this. This person is headed for this. God even declared it. You're a dead man. He said it. Unless you get intercession involved. Because intercession releases grace. And that's a pretty awesome principle. So we can, so you see how I'm doing this? If we pull away, you know, the husk of the cultural and the accommodation and all that kind of stuff, there's all kinds of principles that we can glean. Uh, and this made me think, this intercession thing made me think about James chapter five. Because sometimes our psychological disorder, usually our psychological disorder, but sometimes even our physical health has to do with sin that we're involved in. So James says, is any one of you sick? Kind of like Abimelech, why are all my women cursed in my house? Uh, well, because you've sinned. He said, call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. So confess your sins to one another, pray for each other so that you may be healed. So again, we have this inner, grace can intervene and fix even judgment, reverse it, turn it on its head. That's a pretty awesome principle. And then the one that I wanted to end on was this whole idea. God's offered Abraham a covenant. He said, all I want you to do is believe. Abraham becomes the, uh, I don't know what you say. <laughs> we don't have patron saints and Protestantism, but he's like the patron saint of faith, you know, Elijah's a patron saint of intercession. And, you know, it's just like, not really, we don't have those, um, but he's like the faith guy. And it says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was a hundred years old, the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God promised he was able to perform. So he's taking Old Testament situation. He's paring away all the husk and the chaff. What are you supposed to learn from this? God, When God offers a covenant, stand on it. Don't be shaken from it. Believe in it. Can you do stupid things as you're following God? No, you will do stupid things while you're following God. And then the devil will tell you, you've nullified the covenant. God says, no, I, I, this is all on me. What's on them is to just believe in what I've done. So he says, therefore, is credited him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. Fancy word for sin was raised because of our justification. So I thought, yeah, it's always good to end on Jesus. That's where all scripture is supposed to be pointing. So when we go through the whole Old Testament narrative, we do all our 50 hand signs, it ends on Jesus. The New Testament points back to Jesus. The Old Testament points towards Jesus. And these examples 
in the Old Testament, most of them are going to speak to us about some facet about who Jesus was and what what he did and how it pertains to us. So I just thought I'd run over some of this stuff. I hope this was helpful. I hope it points it was convicting, liberating, helps you guys. But end with this. Your relationship with God isn't on your shoulders and it's not dependent on your performance. Your relationship with God is based upon your continued belief. I think there's only one sin that can't be forgiven and won't be forgiven. And that is failing to acknowledge and accept what Jesus Christ has done. He bore all our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's put in the ground. They raised him on the third day so that we can be free from sin, so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, and so that we can understand why we were created. And when we really understand what God's done, we won't be saying, oh, can I keep sinning now? It's like, no, I can be righteous now because that's who I am. That's what I am. So I hope that was helpful. And I will close with prayer, and then we will uh, we can do what we need to do. People can go get their kids. Uh, pretty much standard practice now is anybody that needs prayer after this, um, after our time together, stick around, please. God's been doing wonderful stuff. If anybody in here isn't born again, you don't know what that means. Don't just come back every week and be confused, and I don't know what that means, and I don't know what that means. Maybe someday it'll just happen. No, it's kind of like getting married. You got to make some definite choices and decisions and statements. Um, and you know when it happens, kind of like you'd know if you got hit by a bus. Uh, you know when it happens. And you can say, when were you born again? And you could say, you know, September the 10th, 2023. So if that's you, uh, please stay after and uh, let's work at that relationship with the Lord. But let's pray together and then go get your kids or go to lunch or stick around for prayer. So Father, we come before in Jesus' name. We thank you for your word, that all of it is helpful and useful. Uh, we just have to develop the tools to um, understand it. I pray for anyone in here or anyone on the internet who's listening to this who doesn't know you yet. Um, they'd come to know you because you love them and you make life sweet and full and purposeful. You give us the fullness of life, just like your word says. Uh, I pray for those who need prayer today, that they would uh, receive ministry. We thank you that you're doing miracles all the time. And we just praise you. Just we, Especially on Tuesday night, we pray hard for something, and the next week we hear that it's done. And I just pray that we would keep that heart of intercession. Uh, we love you. Bless our fellowship together. We give you all the praise and all the glory. And Jesus, we thank you so much for making it all possible. We pray this in your name. Amen.